0: you have your bibles this morning let's get into god's word together this morning as we continue our study through first corinthians together we're in first corinthians chapter 9 as we carry on in our study through first corinthians together last week we looked at first corinthians chapter 8 This morning, we find ourselves in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and what we're going to look to do, because it is sort of, I believe, a unit in what's discussed here, is travel from verse 1 down through verse 23, so we got to move a little more quickly to cover what's addressed here. I'm not going to read the entirety of the text because it's just too lengthy to do that, but I would like to at least read verses 1 through 12 to at least give the context of what we'll be looking at together this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read our scripture this morning? Paul says, First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of that flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God's concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, That he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partaker of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And Father, we pray for the grace and help of your Holy Spirit now to continue in our worship by receiving the truth of your word And that every intent behind why you inspired this next portion that we look at together in the book of 1 Corinthians would find its place to speak and address things in our hearts and lives and as a church family as well. So bless your word and speak now by your spirit's ministry. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that exists right now, particularly in our American culture is getting people to think beyond themselves. Let me say that again. One of the greatest challenges, I believe, in the modern American culture is getting people to think beyond themselves. That is to actually think beyond their own preferences, their own views, their own needs, what they want, to actually be able to look past what they want, to think about something beyond their own interest, and to actually think about instead the benefit of others, to think about the interests of others, to think about what may be the preference of others. And here's even farther, to even do what may be in the best interest of others, to even do what may be the preference of others. That's really what our text predominantly is addressing in the heart of the main truth of what the Holy Spirit, I believe, is communicating here. In fact, the key, if you look ahead to verse 23, where we'll try and conclude this morning, Paul says, the first part of verse 23, Now this I do notice for the gospel's sake. Paul says it's for the sake of the gospel and the gospel ministry. That's why I do these things that I'm speaking about prior in verses 1 through 22. Now the background, remember, chapter 8 we saw last time, Paul's been speaking about our right to exercise Christian liberties and that we do have certain freedoms from the Lord where the word of God doesn't specifically forbid us to do something, where the word of God doesn't directly command us that we have to do something as a part of our christian life or to do something that we have certain liberties there are gray areas and secondary issues in the spiritual life where we have certain freedoms to make decisions in our own conscience before the lord and paul was addressing that in the last chapter yet saying that our liberties to do certain things should always be governed and guided by what love by love for other people, and that's what should guide and govern how we exercise our liberty, seeking to be sensitive to others, to not stumble and offend other people spiritually, or hurt other people by the exercise of our liberty to free to do something, that we should never demand our freedom and exercise our rights if, listen, it's going to be at the expense of another person. So I may have the freedom and right to do something, but I should never exercise that freedom and right if it's going to be at the expense or cost of hurting someone else or maybe stumbling or hindering someone else even spiritually. Instead, the Bible says we should make personal sacrifices to do what benefits others if that's what's needed. Now, Paul, using that backdrop of chapter eight, he now says, look, I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. He ended the chapter by saying, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. Now, as he goes into chapter 9, he's going to cite a personal example of those very truths. He's going to cite his own personal example from his own life and ministry, how he practiced this among the church of Corinth, where he refrained from exercising his God given right to receive financial compensation from them as a church, as he ministered there among the city of Corinth, both as a christian minister and as a missionary that he refrained from exercising that right of financial support at times he chose and corinth was one of the places that he chose to refrain from doing this and he did it he's going to say because of the specific circumstances he did not want to hinder the gospel's effectiveness or the effectiveness of his spiritual ministry so he opted in the city of corinth there to refrain from his liberty in that particular location of ministry And he said, I did this out of love and because I didn't want to hinder my effectiveness in ministry amongst you. So notice, Paul opens up here with some rhetorical questions, answers obviously being implied. That's what a rhetorical question is. When the question's asked, the idea is the answer's already implied. It's assumed. So Paul begins verse one by saying, am I not an apostle? Assumed answer. Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? our Lord, and are you not my work in the Lord? Now, Paul's addressing these things, we could tell from verse uh, three, because there were those who become critics of him and were trying to question his authenticity, as a minister of the Lord saying that he was a fake or another fraudulent minister who was just a religious huckster coming through the next town and so forth. So Paul's having to address some of these things. He says, first of all, am I not an apostle? And the word apostle means one sent out with authority, From a throne with the authorization of the backing of a throne. That's the idea of just the term in general, even non-spiritually, it was a sent one with authority. Now, in a strict sense, it's used by Paul here, particularly in this verse to be a reference to how there were certain select men in the New Testament who had the office, not the ministry. I think those are two different things in and of itself, the office of being a apostle in a New Testament sense. And Paul was one of those individuals, given that unique office of divine authority from the Lord to establish the early church, to write New Testament scripture, and to help establish the early church among Christianity. Ephesians 2 talks about how Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and foundation for the church. And yet it says the church, however, was built through the ministry office of those who were apostles and prophets among the early church. Now, Acts 1 tells us that part of the criteria for being an apostle that is one who held the office of an apostle was two things. Acts one says it had to be someone who had seen and been among Jesus Christ as he was there in the flesh, in his earthly ministry, which Paul would have been around during that time, as well as Peter and others. You had to have seen Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry in the flesh. And you also had to have had a personal encounter or experience with the risen Lord Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead. Paul, of course, met both of those criterias. That's why he also says here in verse one, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? That's what he's referring to. I saw him in the flesh, even though Paul wasn't serving him then, and Paul had a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ as well. That's why he then asks at the end of verse one, going into verse two, are you not my work in the Lord? And am I not an apostle to, if I'm not an apostle to others, he says, yet doubtless I am to you there at Corinth, for you are the seal, the proof, the evidence of my apostleship in the Lord. Again, the church at Corinth was indeed Paul's work in the Lord. Remember, in the city of Corinth there at that time, a church did not even exist until the Lord used the apostle Paul to go there, present the gospel and actually to establish the first church church in Corinth. So Paul went there in faith at the Lord's directing of his life to that community. He proclaimed the gospel message of salvation. People got saved. Paul started teaching the word of God. He started providing pastoral care to people and pastoral leadership. Spent 18 months there, a church was planted, and there for 18 months he remained in a pastoral capacity, ministering and caring for people and teaching them the word of God. And the very existence of the church at Corinth was, as Paul says, verse two here, the seal, the idea is the, the evidence or the proof of the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry. The fact that a church was planted there as a result of Paul's ministry efforts verified Pretty clearly his calling. In other words, what Paul's reminding them, look, is I don't just claim to be called by God. I'm not claiming that I'm called by God. He says the reality is the fruit of my ministry, there's a church here now, is just the simple evidence that God has proved and you as the church are my seal, the proof of my apostleship. That truly I am fulfilling God's calling and he has worked through my ministry to help plant a church here. Well, having established and verified the authenticity of his ministry, he now begins to address the question that he referenced as well back in verse one, where you notice he said there, am I not free? Now this leads him into what he's going to start to talk about among them. What he's going to discuss is don't I have the freedoms in connection to my true calling As an apostle of the Lord, a missionary, church planner, a pastor, do I not, in that God-ordained appointment, have certain rights and freedom to exercise in connection to that calling from the Lord? And indeed, Paul properly did. Yet for love's sake, he's going to describe how he denied to use those freedoms at times, particularly in the church at Corinth specifically, in order to try and do what was in the best interest of serving people and reaching people for the sake of the gospel. And he sets this beautiful example we're going to see as he talks about it in this chapter, which I think is very Christ-like, where Paul was willing to deny himself in order really to do what would be in the best interest of others and most helpful to be effective for the kingdom of God's sake, just like Jesus himself did. So Paul says, going on in verse three, my defense to those who examine me, there were those cross-examining and questioning him, So he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Notice Paul having such a wonderfully pure heart, having very sincere motives for ministry as a servant of the Lord, yet there were those who still tried to discredit the apostle Paul and his ministry. He refers to here how they examined him. These are literally court terms that Paul uses here, like a prosecuting attorney, always trying to find the fault in an individual that you're trying to discredit in the case of prosecution, the idea is. And this, no doubt, I believe, was just simply a part of the spiritual warfare that came against the Apostle Paul's life, right? I mean, if you're not going to do something dumb like steal money from the church or go and live a, a, you know immoral lifestyle in some way and cheat on your spouse, I mean, if you're not going to do these obvious brazen things, the devil has to find some way to try and stop a man like that. And one of the ways it came against the apostle Paul was through the mouths of people speaking things against him, trying to criticize him, trying to question his integrity and so forth. And Paul describes here how the devil was inspiring throughout his life on occasion, people who were just troublemakers. They were just troublemakers in the church that just were looking for ways to try and hinder Paul's effectiveness. And Paul, however, had a clear and reasonable defense, he's going to say here, to even meet their untrue accusations about him. And that's what he now goes on to describe. He says, verse four, Do we have no right, he says, to eat and to drink? Now, the idea there is don't we have the right to have our basic necessities met? That's what he means thereby eating and drinking. He's saying, surely I deserve at least in light of what I do for the kingdom to have my basic necessities met in order to be able to live. Paul's point is those who serve the Lord, particularly in a vocational or occupational capacity, that they are entitled from God's design to be able to have their basic needs met to give themselves fully to focus upon that work among God's people. He then goes on verse five to say, do we have no right, he says as well, to take along a a believing wife, as do, he says, the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and he mentions as well even Cephas, which, of course, is a reference to Peter. So in verse 5 here, he speaks of how it was the custom in the early church of spiritual leaders, even references Cephas, the apostle Peter, that as they traveled around in their ministry purposes and doing different things to take along their wife with them in their ministry functions. So it's implied, the idea here, that it was wise and healthy among the early church to have their wife along with them as they traveled and as they went about ministering and doing different things. The reason, obvious, was for things like support, that their wife was there with them, protection, to honor their integrity, to protect them from People you know, questioning their you know, moral capacity. What were they doing while they were away from their wife? Or as well, just the fact that their wife was with them. It's a safeguard. It protected them from temptation and just things that could have been very harmful to them that could have disrupted their effectiveness in the ministry. So apparently it was the practice of spiritual leaders to bring along their wives. And both of them apparently were sufficiently provided for by the Lord's people because they saw the wisdom in them being together as a unit and a couple in serving the Lord. So Paul says, as we do ministry Don't me and Barnabas have the right to exercise the same as other spiritual leaders are exercising to bring our wives along and that we would both be provided for to serve the Lord as a ministry couple? The implied answer again with the question is, of course, yes, that that was a wise thing and the church recognized that. Verse six, he then asks again, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right, he says, to refrain from. From working. So again, referring to how others who were serving the Lord as missionaries and pastors and apostles in the early church, they had refrained from working typical jobs in society because they were supported and provided for by God's people to be able to journey around and to accomplish the work among the Lord's people, to dedicate their primary attention to the Lord's work. So as Paul asks again, this rhetorical type question, he's saying, look, is there some reason why Barnabas and I, because we're being questioned by certain individuals, should be excluded from the same opportunity to refrain from secular work and to engage more freely in the Lord's spiritual labor? The implied answer is, of course not. Barnabas and Paul should have the exact same right to do the same as those others who were clearly doing such. And again, it wasn't so that they could be lazy, It was so that they could be liberated to give their full attention, their energy and their focus to the work of the Lord and to helping God's people. That They should receive financial provision in direct connection to the work that they were actually engaged in and doing and understand when you look at a chapter like this, the reasoning really from God's perspective is very logical. It's very practical. It's very realistic. I love how God is, is, you know, a very practical, realistic God in the way that he functions. I mean, if you just take aside the spiritual thing and think of how businesses function, you know, in, in business, a business compensates their employee in a relative way in connection to the work that they do. So if a a business person travels, typically a business takes care of their traveling expenses. Or if somebody works for a business, the business doesn't say thank you for your volunteer labor and hope you find another way to pay your bills. Right? It doesn't happen. It's just it's very practical. And you work as a mechanic, the auto shop pays your salary. And so it's just a very practical thing that God is setting forth and that Paul is simply bringing to their attention here. Now, he really drives home the application of this as he goes on in verse seven. Look what he says here. He asks again a few more questions, which are implied answers. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, what soldier does that? He says, who plants a vineyard and then doesn't get to eat of his own fruit from the vineyard that he plants and works, or who tends a flock as a shepherd and doesn't drink the milk of the flock. So he says with three illustrations here, what soldier going to war, think about it, at the king's request. So that soldier is being sent out into a combat zone to do what's hard on the battlefield to help other people who are part of the kingdom to honor his king and fulfill his king's request, making various personal sacrifices as soldiers do, enduring hardships as a soldier to fight for what's right for a higher purpose than himself, And he says, what soldier gets asked to do that at their own expense? Hey, by the way, could you cover your expenses while you're out there in the combat zone? Paul says, this is just an obvious thing. Soldiers are supplied and properly given what they need to fulfill their function in the battlefield to fight and to do what their king has asked them to do for the sake of the people. And he says, secondarily, regarding a farmer, what farmer, hardworking farmer, he says, plants a vineyard, tends the vineyard takes care of the vineyard and does the farming work that doesn't deserve to eat some of the fruit of his own labors as he plants that field and tends the vineyard. Again, a farmer is entitled to be supplied to some degree of the very thing that comes forth as the result of his work and his labors in doing that work. And then the third idea he gives there, the example, verse seven, is what shepherd, he says, cares for a flock and tends it and guides it and protects it and makes sure the, sh- the flock is well-fed that doesn't then have the right to partake of some of the milk that the flock supplies. So why? So that he can be sustained to continue to be healthy and strong enough to take care of and love and serve the sheep. Again, shepherds love their sheep, but the milk provided from the sheep is what also helped them keep caring for the sheep in a way that was sufficient for the flock. So again, notice how practical the reasoning, the evidence of soldiers the evidence of the farmer, the shepherds. Paul's just using everyday analogies, but he's speaking of these things, how they, they, they were great analogies, notice, for biblical pictures of ministry work and Christian service. And let me just say in connection to that, these are biblical pictures that we see all throughout the New Testament of what it means to function in Christian service, to be able to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord, it's much like being a soldier, right? serving on a battlefield there's spiritual warfare and it's like being a soldier and that's what it means to serve the lord you have to be willing to operate like a soldier on a battlefield to enter into the battle you can't overly be preoccupied with self-preservation you it's a battle it's not going to be easy it's a battle but it's a battle worth fighting because we know who wins the war and we know what king we're serving and we know what king we're seeking to work in opposition against. That is like a evil dictator destroying people's lives. So it's worth the battle. I'm willing to soldier on. He says, ministry and Christian service. It's much like being a farmer, working a field. You gotta work the field and be faithful and plow on and plow on because you're trusting to gonna ultimately reap some harvest from that spiritually and eternally. And it says it's much like shepherding a flock. It's like taking care of people who are sheep and loving them, and protecting them, and feeding them, and guiding them. This is what Christian ministry and service is like. And let me say this morning before I move on, for those who have a heart to serve the Lord, let me just say, these are the characteristics that we must be willing to manifest. If you want to serve the Lord, verse 7, give great characteristics that God says these are the essential character qualities that I need from you if you want to serve me in my kingdom purposes. We have to be willing to be people who have commitment like soldiers. You got to have a soldier's mindset, a soldier's attitude that you're willing to soldier on in commitment. Again, think about a soldier, right? He's in a combat zone. I have tremendous respect for what people do in, you know, fields of combat. I mean, think about this soldier is out there making incredible personal sacrifices and a soldier doesn't have the freedom to say, I'm going to hide here in my foxhole because if I get out of my foxhole, I might get shot. There is a probability I could get shot. But what if a soldier said, no, I'm afraid if I get out of my foxhole, I, I might get shot like other people have gotten shot. It might happen to me. Can a soldier do that? Can't, can he? A soldier says, there's something bigger than myself here. There's a higher purpose. I can't hunker down in my foxhole. Yeah, I might get shot, but I'm a soldier. Paul tells Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You want to serve the Lord? It's a battle, folks. You got to be willing to be a soldier. If we want to serve the Lord, that takes that degree of commitment to do that. Like a farmer with that kind of work ethic of faithfulness and plowing on and pushing forward. Farming's not easy work. You've got to be faithful. You've got you to plow on and, and push forward. And again, because you're doing something that is looking for a harvest in the end. You know, I I love to see people on occasion who demonstrate tremendous faithfulness because they realize the importance of certain things. You know, let me even use a fitting example. You know, the Barber family in our church. Tommy Barber's dad just, just died recently. His father died. The day after his father died, they do youth ministry together with Abby and Ryan. The four of them as a couple have been doing youth ministry through this whole pandemic, meeting out in his garage with teenagers who are very much at risk during a time like this. His father died the next day. He could have canceled youth group. But you know what they decided to do? They didn't cancel youth group because they were more concerned about those kids. And they were going through a hard time. Yesterday, we were just with them as their family had their funeral. That was a Saturday. The night before the funeral, there's a lot going on the night before a funeral. They chose to have youth group again for the sake of those teenage kids because they were concerned about and loved those teenage kids and they didn't want to not have consistency in a place for these teenage kids to go to get ministered to. To me, that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. And I would much rather use someone else as the hero of a story than myself. But to me, that, that kind of stuff resonates with me. That's beautiful. Because that's the kind of stuff that's about love and faithfulness for Christ. It's a very, very beautiful, beautiful thing to consider. And Paul says here, look, th- this is what ministry's about as he uses this as an example. Now, speaking of these things, he then says, verse eight, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same thing also? So Paul says, Am I just saying these things like from human logic or my own reasoning? Paul's gonna say, I'm not saying this for my own benefit to get you to, to take care of me. He says, look, I'm not saying this from human reasoning. I'm saying this because doesn't the law, and he's gonna say the law of God also say the same thing. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm saying these things because there's a biblical basis for them. Not because it's my own idea or the patterns of others or how I feel about something. Paul is indicating here that God's law taught these things and that's why he believed them and lived by them in faith. And this is great to remember, folks, in all matters, but especially sensitive subjects, right? <laughs> like, like, like this, money? Oh, money and, and money in the church or paying a minister or whatever. I mean, look, it's just awkward for me to preach this sermon, is it isn't for you to listen to it. But in all things, especially things that are a little bit more sensitive, you know what's the wisest thing to do, have a biblical basis for your perspective. Paul's saying, the reason I can talk about this is there's a biblical basis for this. It's God's idea. He's saying, I just have a biblical basis. And look, let me encourage you, don't let emotions or patterns of others or experiences shape your views or your reasoning. Always look to the truth and the authority of God's word, and you can rest on that with humble conviction because there's a biblical basis. Believe what you believe because there's a biblical basis. That's the right way to develop perspectives in our reasoning. So Paul says, doesn't God's law say this? And then he proves it, verse nine. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not, he says, muzzle an ox. What a great illustration of those who serve in ministry, like an ox plowing forward. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then Paul says, was it really ox? From Deuteronomy 25, he says, was it really oxen that God was truly concerned about? Again, the Old Testament law commanded that when an animal, an ox, was working to help provide food for you, you were not to muzzle the ox and hinder it from being able to eat some food itself as a way of doing the work it did to benefit you. So to properly show compassion, you were to let the animal be unmuzzled so that it needed to eat on occasion and it could be fed and strengthened so to continue to perform its work to help supply what nourished you as an individual so they wouldn't muzzle an ox. So Paul says, look, verse 9, he says, tell me, he says, do you think it was really ox foremost that God was concerned about? Was God really concerned about this principle for the ox? Or he says, what well, do you think he was saying it all together for our sakes? That is for people, that God cares about people. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should be at a plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. So Paul's just pointing out, he's saying, well, I think God was thinking a little bit beyond just the oxes in the animal kingdoms he was using an analogy here that you shouldn't muzzle the ox while it's doing the work that benefits you he goes on to say there in verse 10 he who plows in hope should he says plow in hope he also threshes in hope should then be a partaker of this hope in other words paul is implying here Look, as spiritual ministers, as missionaries, as pastors and so forth, he says, serving in the Lord's field, just like the ox would, he says, look, we should be able to plow in hope in the Lord's harvest field, trusting that as we do what's right, we can be hopeful and confident that we'll be sustained just like the ox was in the midst of doing the work that we do as laborers to help others. Paul then says, going on in regards to these things, verse eleven, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it then a great thing, is a unusual or great request if we would then reap, he says, of your material things. Again, sowing and reaping has always been a principle that who put in place? God did. So he says, think it through. He says, if we faithfully invest into your lives by sowing spiritual benefit so that you flourish and become fruitful, He's saying, is it really unreasonable that we would then to some degree reap some mutual return in material assistance to be able to be sustained to keep investing back into your life in a spiritual way? Again, Paul saw this whole concept as just a matter of mutual love among the Christian family, that Paul exercised his love in that way. They exercised his love reciprocally towards him by caring for him as a missionary and the one who served among them. But notice, as Paul establishes all this, he then says in verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are not even we. So apparently the church at Corinth, to Paul's testament there, verse 12, apparently they had at times financially provided for other Christian ministers. But they had not provided assistance for Paul. Paul's gonna say it was because he declined it. But what Paul is saying, look, is apparently you've been helping other Christian servants is it unusual then when Barnabas and I were the primary investors into the church at Corinth that we should ever be entitled to receive some financial support? The idea was, of course they were entitled to it. Paul's just presenting the case. He's not, you know, saying, look, there's something unusual here. It is an obvious God-given right. Paul's build the case that we would be able to receive compensation. But Paul now comes to verse 12. However, showing the pure and sincere heart he had in Christian service, because look what Paul says. Though he's established it's his right, he says, nevertheless, verse 12, we've not used this right from God, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So though Paul understood it was his scriptural, God-given right to be able to receive compensation financially for his ministry work, and at times we see Paul in scripture receiving financial gifts. And at times, again, Paul wasn't a legalist. There were times when he received financial compensation to help serve the Lord, but Paul mentions here there were other times, and this was one of the occasions while serving the church of Corinth specifically, where Paul says he actually opted to refrain from receiving financial compensation as he did his ministry work in that particular city there he did not use that right of being compensated Paul chose for reasons he saw best to operate in love no doubt and wisdom in the situation not to receive monetary uh, support from the church at Corinth there in that particular situation instead he says verse 12 instead we endured all things lest we would hinder the gospel of Christ Paul says instead we just endured things the idea there is just referring to what Paul did on occasion Paul at times would be willing to endure additional personal challenge or extra burden by doing things, by finding ways as we know in the Bible, to work as a tent maker to generate income that he or his ministry team needed from time to time so that he wouldn't become a burden. There were numerous times we see in the word of God where Paul's pattern when he would go into a territory is he would work as a tent maker and him and his team would provide for their own resources that they needed to establish a solid reputation and to bless and serve the people in that community that they would go into to plant a church at. And I think there was tremendous wisdom as well as love in what Paul was doing, that Paul wanted them to know, look, we're not here to get something from you. We don't want to be a burden on you. We're here to serve you and to preach the gospel and to minister to you. So at times, this is why Paul would endure certain things. He says, verse 12, lest we would hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying, look, we don't want to hinder the Lord's work. We didn't want to do something that would cause people to question our integrity or at times, you know, you know make people be distracted by this or that. As he says at times it was just wise, we realized to refrain from receiving financial support when the situation called for it, lest we would hinder our effectiveness in the Lord's work. And that is the heart, folks, let me tell you, of a pure-hearted servant. It's a very beautiful example in the word of God, knowing it's acceptable and available to have the opportunity to receive financial compensation. Yet at times, listen, thinking beyond themselves and saying, you know, I understand it's a right. It's not, but yet I'm thinking beyond myself here. And maybe in this situation, it might not be best to receive that financial compensation. And and just again, thinking beyond himself Not wanting to hinder the Lord's work for whatever reason, choosing to be sacrificial and to refrain from receiving financial support. For example, whether it's receiving support maybe or a salary to work, uh, you know, the Lord's work. Maybe at times we work a job or we work a part-time job or whatever. And and to consider these things on occasion if that's in the best interest of of a particular ministry dynamic, whether as a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist that we think about those kind of things. Hey, what would be best here in this situation? What would be best for the Lord's people and to not be a hindrance to the gospel work or maybe declining to be compensated on occasion to do some work and to say, you know, I, honestly, I, I don't need to be compensated for that. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. I don't need to be compensated in some way and to do that on occasion that we don't hinder the work of the Lord. Let me just say, I think that's simply a great biblical spiritual principle, not even in regards to money and ministry. It's just an attitude in general that as Christians, that we don't always have to take advantage of every right or thing we think we're entitled to and instead to think about other people. What did Jesus say? It's more blessed to give than to receive you know i i can stand before you with all in integrity after 22 years in senior pastoral ministry and tell you in the multiple privileges occasions i've had to plant churches and pastor and be in ministry that from time to time that recognizing the value of this i've exercised this same thing where you first go into a community and plant a church i worked full time for the first three years while we planted and pastored calvary chapel of york when we were there just because I knew it was the right thing to do in that situation, was it hard? Yeah. Were there sleepless nights? Absolutely. There were times I stood up on a Sunday morning, and I had never slept Saturday night because I had a family to take care of and children to put to bed, and I wasn't going to neglect my wife and kids, and I needed to work a full-time job, and and you got to do what you got to do. But it was just the right thing to go about that in that way. And there are times, again, where over the years in York, Pennsylvania, even since we've been pastoring here now the last seven eight years, you know, where I've had the board offer me a raise on occasion, and prayed about it and thought about it, and just felt like from time to time, you know, I just we're okay, and I I just don't feel like it's appropriate. I think it's better to just decline the raise and to decline the increase in income. For again, it's a conviction thing, and there's balance in it, but there's a time to actually think beyond ourselves from time to time. And to think about what's in the best interest of others. I want to care about the Lord's work. I don't want to hinder the Lord's work. And to have that mindset as a Christian, just generally, again, not just in the things Paul's saying, is a very beautiful thing. He's thinking beyond himself about the interest of others. We didn't use this right there. In Corinth, we just didn't feel it was right. But we just endured things, lest we'd hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things, he now goes back to the Old Testament, Eat the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. So again, he's citing what scriptural basis from Leviticus six and seven for his reasoning and his mindset to teach the people describing how God established the worship system of the temple. He appointed what Levites and priests who were to give their full devotion to that worship ministry to help people in their spiritual lives and to help them grow in the Lord and God established that they would be compensated by part of the offerings brought to the temple at God's house, that a portion was given to the ministers to ensure they were supplied to keep doing ministry. So Paul then, having citing that, verse 14, says then, even so, in other words, God hasn't changed. Even so, the Lord has commanded, verse 14, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So Paul indicates God hasn't changed the same pattern he established in the Old Testament is the same pattern and principle for the New Testament in grace and gospel work as well. Notice Paul even says, verse 14, this is something that the Lord has commanded. Jesus' instruction that those who preach the gospel would live from the gospel. Likely, I think Paul's thinking about what Jesus actually spoke on occasion in his own teachings, when he says the Lord commanded this. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out 12 to go do his work. Then we see as well in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out another 70 to do ministry. And in both of those passages, as he sends out people to go do gospel work, Jesus gives them the instruction not to worry about packing their own provisions, but instead he tells them to trust and receive what would just be provided for them. And then he said, for the laborer, is worthy of his wages. And that was Jesus' instruction to them, to just trust that they would be taken care of. Then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul there, speaking of these same things, quoting Jesus' words. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is the labor of preaching and teaching for the scripture says, quoting again Deuteronomy He says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul just indicates this pattern is something the Lord Jesus himself has set in order for effectively doing gospel ministry among the New Testament church, that those who do gospel work occupationally should be supplied financially to be able to give themselves to it in the most effective way, that as Christians bring their offerings unto the Lord as an act of worship in the church, as the Old Testament saints did with the temple, that a portion of those offerings brought to the house of God in the church should be used to supply those serving in the work of the kingdom and doing gospel ministry. Paul says, verse 15, but I have used none of these things, notice, again, he says, nor, look, I haven't written these things that it should be done so for me. Paul says, <laughs> I'm not writing this hoping that you'll write me a reimbursement check there from Corinth. That's not what Paul was writing these things for. He's not writing these things for some self-serving purpose. Why was Paul writing this? Because under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul knew it was just healthy, proper teaching for the church. And he taught on every other subject. And so Paul said, look, every other subject is important. This is an important subject for church life as well. In fact, he indicates, he says there, it would be better for me to die that anybody there in Corinth should take my boasting and make it void. So Paul's saying, well, I'm not writing this for a self-serving purpose. He's saying, quite frankly, I'd rather starve to death than have anybody in Corinth in that church there give me a penny now and then be able to discredit me as some fraudulent minister that's just trying to do these things for the money. Paul said, I'd rather starve to death, quite honestly, before I would take money from you. That's not why I'm writing these things. He then says, verse 16, here's why I'm doing this. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity, a burden is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul indicates he didn't preach the gospel because he saw it as an opportunity to make some good living occupationally. He said he did it because he was fulfilling a divine commission. He says, I preach the gospel because there's a burden, a necessary burden that I find on my heart, he says, that the Lord's put upon me. That's why he says in the end of verse 16, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, if I don't preach and teach and serve people, I wouldn't be able to live with myself in my own conscience because I see the necessary importance of doing this because it determines people's eternal destiny. And he says, I wouldn't be able to be in good conscience if I didn't do what Christ has compelled me to do. He says verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, that is by compulsion, then I've just been entrusted with a stewardship. So he's pointing out when he served in a willing spirit, he did it out of love for the Lord and out of love for other people. And that was something Paul says that was very rewarding, to be able to do it out of love for Jesus and to want to help people. But he says, however, Though that fulfills me and is rewarding as compared to if I just felt like this was a ministry uh, stewardship or an obligation, like a duty to show up at my job to do it. He says, if that was the case and it was just part of my employment, he says, it would diminish my whole attitude. It wouldn't anyway be rewarding. Instead, I'm motivated because I know it's a spiritual calling and not a vocational obligation. And Paul says, this is what's so rewarding in my heart. Look what he says, verse 18. What is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority. So the most rewarding thing to Paul was to be able to serve the Lord in the way that he did with a pure conscience and to be able to conduct himself in a way whereby Paul had established a lifestyle Where he was able to free himself in a way where he didn't need to always be compensated all the time, but could just find enjoyment presenting the gospel and doing it free of charge in an unburdened, unhindered way that he could give give forth of himself to bless and benefit people and that he could never truly be accused of kind of peddling the word of God and using spiritual things or ministry to enrich himself in some way financially. Because Paul knew what? That's what other people did. That's why Paul's saying there in verse 19, uh, in verse 18, excuse me, he says that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Why do you think Paul's saying that? Because there were people who were, what, abusing their authority in the gospel. And Paul knew that. And Paul said, I don't want to be that guy. First Timothy 6, Paul warns of false teachers who thought that godliness was a means to personal gain or enrichment. And Paul says, I don't ever want to be counted in that category. That's sad and tragic that someone would use the things of God to get ahead in personal enrichment or would use the church like a, a business establishment to try and, again, make it more prosperous, more wealthy, just so they could have a better lifestyle and be a bigger superstar. And, you know. and Paul says, God forbid, I wouldn't, that would be abusing the gospel. That's something I would never want to be a part of, Paul says. That would be a, a tragedy. He says, that's why I never demand my rights when I preach. And what you see in Paul's heart here, folks, is this, is Paul cared more about reaching people than ensuring his own personal security as an individual. And that's beautiful. Paul cared more about reaching people than ensuring his security. He loved people and he trusted the Lord to provide for him as his provider what would be necessary and sufficient to take care of him. So Paul didn't have to say, "Uh, what, you you want me to come for a marriage conference? Um, What's the pay on that? Uh, What's the honorarium gonna be? Paul didn't have to say when he left one church plant to go to a new community to plant a new church. Look, I'm willing to do that, but before I come, Could we negotiate what's going to be the pay scale when I get there? Paul didn't have to do that because Paul knew he was following a divine calling. And if he followed a divine calling that the Lord, his provider, would sufficiently provide for him what he needed as he just did what was right in a pure hearted attitude. And this is exactly, I believe, what the heart of the Lord is in regards to these things. Again, thinking beyond ourselves. Now, let's conclude. Look with me quickly in verses 19 to 23 as Paul shows that his heart of thinking beyond others went just beyond money. This isn't just a money thing. Look what Paul says. Though I am free from all men, I've made myself, what, a servant to all, that I might win, that is to Christ, the more. And then look what he says. To the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as those who were under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law of God he says, without the law, not being without law toward God, but being under law toward Christ, that is the higher law of Christ's kingdom, that I might win those who are without the law to the weak he said, I became weak, that I might win the weak, I become all things verse twenty two to all men that I might by all means save some, and this I do for the gospel 's sake. do you see all this? attitude and mindset. It was a thread that ran through Paul's whole life. It wasn't just a money thing. That was just one example that was an issue there at Corinth. And so Paul addressed it to teach the church. He says, I do all these things for the sake of the gospel, to honor Christ, to reach souls, to get people to know about Jesus. He did whatever was required of him, making sacrifices and adjustments to do what? Connect with people. He adjusted as was necessary as a servant to earn people's respect because he wanted to connect with people so he would set aside what was ever needed. So Paul said, when I was with the Jews, I knew they really cared about the Old Testament law. So out of respect for them, I didn't say, what's the matter with you law keepers? This is, I, I'm not. Paul said, when I was with the Jews, I respected what it was like to be a Jew because I knew I could connect with them and build a bridge. Look, Our landlord. When I try and talk to him and win him to Jesus, so keep praying for him, do you know what I always do? I always send him Old Testament verses because I know he's Jewish. And we've developed a friendship because whenever we talk about things of the Lord, I always purpose, I never use New Testament verses. I always send him Old Testament. No, he doesn't know. Sometimes he goes, I can't believe you know our book better than we do. I said, right, because we, we believe the whole thing, man. You need to read your Bible. Paul says, when I dealt with somebody who was outside of the law, a Gentile, I didn't get hung up and talking about, well, listen, according to Old Testament law, Paul didn't quote the Old Testament. He just went right for Christ. Paul says, I just paid attention when I was with weak people, people who were poor or struggling. I didn't go in in a way whereby i Paul says, I became weak. The idea is I adjusted my situation to meet people where they were at because he cared about souls. He cared about souls. Folks, that's love, thinking beyond ourselves in a servant-hearted way where we are willing to be flexible to meet people and connect with people, to be strategic and think in these ways because souls are important. Let me ask you this morning, what are you willing to do for the gospel's sake? What sacrifices are you willing to make? What adjustments are you willing to make? Think about Jesus, Right? I'd say Jesus made a few adjustments to leave heaven and to come reach the earth. But aren't you glad he did? And if the spirit of Christ is in me, all I really need to do is yield to Jesus and I can allow him to use me for the same things. Let's stand.